Thanks for joining us on episode 15 of the SAP UK podcast. On the show this week, we're featuring a recent panel discussion about the barriers that organisations are facing in meeting their sustainability goals, the necessity to move to a circular economy, and we also take a look ahead to the UN Climate Change Conference, which is taking place in Glasgow. Without further ado, let me just first introduce myself real briefly, and then secondly, give each of the panelists a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is uh, Michiel Verhoeven. I'm Managing Director for SAP in the UK and in Ireland. I started here last year, July. Uh, absolutely delighted to be in what we believe in SAP is one of the most important cloud markets globally and a fantastic opportunity for us. And sustainability being at the top of mind of many of our customers, it's a pleasure to be here today with all of you. Um, let me give Walter, my Dutch colleague, Walter van Tol, a chance to introduce himself. He's from our customer, D.S. Smith. Wouter, over to you, please. Thank you, Michiel. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Wouter van Tol. I'm the Head of Government, Community Affairs and Sustainability for DS Smith. As you uh, probably know, DS Smith is the FTSE 100 uh, corrugated paper packaging company, uh, and we uh, supply many of the uh, fast-moving consumer goods uh, companies, retailers, and uh, e-commerce uh, retailers as well. Thank you, Walter. And as I mentioned, uh, Leah Smith is an SAP customer and also a collaboration partner for us on the Waste Insights project, about which we'll tell you a little bit more of later. Uh, then I'd like to give it to Mike Groves, who is the CEO of Topolytics. Mike, over to you, please. Thank you, Michael. Morning, everyone. Um, yeah, Mike Groves, I'm the founder and chief executive of Topolytics. We're a data analytics business and we're making the world's waste visible, verifiable and valuable. Um, so um, in a previous life, I also wrote quite a few of the sort of annual sustainability reports that we might end up sort of talking about today as well. So, so I've got a sort of fairly broad background around sustainability as well. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. And it's exciting to have you here today as a partner and especially on the waste projects and that you'll tell us more about and particularly what we're doing in Scotland. So I'm very excited to be partnering with you. Thank you. Um, thirdly, I'd like to introduce Professor Peter Hopkinson, who's from the University of Exeter. He specializes in circular economy and is also a collaborator with us on an SAP course that we've recently launched for a circular economy. Peter, over to you, please. Thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I'm Peter Hopkinson. I'm professor of circular economy at the Exeter University Business School. I've been studying the circular economy with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation since about 2009. We run a, a global masterclass uh, for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So we had the cohort 11 last night. We had 177 participants from around the world from multiple sectors, multiple product categories and multiple roles, functional roles uh, who are interested in, in the, the challenge of implementing the circular economy and how do you take the, the abstract principles and concept into something that creates and captures value. So I'm also a director of a new £30 million uh, United Kingdom Research Council programme uh, called NISA, uh, the National Interdisciplinary Circular Economy Research Programme, and I, I'm director of the hub. Thank you very much, Peter, and fantastic to have you here as well. And then I'd like to introduce my colleague, Stephen Jameson, who's really been spearheading a lot of the work that we do in SAP on our circular economy solutions. Stephen, over to you, please. Thank you, Michael. So, yeah, Stephen Jamieson, Global Head of Circular Economy Solutions here at SAP. I guess I've been on a, a four-year mission uh, to help the world um, 
ultimately realize the vision and reality of a circular economy and deliver a world of regenerative business um you know where we can ultimately embrace nature positive solutions and uh, deliver a world of zero waste and reform the economy so looking forward to talking more about that with you uh, later on thank you Stephen. um now i'd like to get started on the panel conversation and give you first a, a bit of an introduction to why we're here today. We have COP26, which is just on the horizon. And many people talk about, of course, sustainability, but is it a nice to have or is it a necessity? We all know the answer, it's a necessity. And if you look at the reasons why we believe that collectively, well, first, it doesn't take only um, Greta Thunberg to say it, it takes us to do it. We have a true obligation to the planet. I think individually we feel that, we see that, and we're reminded by that, by the IPCC's findings earlier this year, where it's clear we're running out of time on our net zero goals collectively, and we need to decarbonize processes, and we need to change our practices swiftly. At the same time, we're also keen to make sure that our day-to-day -day delivery and our costs are kept under control so we have a profitable future and a sustainable one at the same time. The second main reason why we believe action is needed now is of course because of the scrutiny that exists on industry and business to understand and fulfill the sustainability commitments. There's a much uh, more emphasis now on scope three, as all of you know, which makes businesses responsible for the less apparent parts of their value chain and surface level actions or greenwashing or offsetting in isolation is definitely not enough. And we all know that we need to address this. And from all the customers I've spoken to over the last year plus, I would say every CEO is consciously addressing this topic in the boardroom. The third is that the enterprise customers that we have or the businesses in various industries, they see, they hear, and they know that customers that they service be they consumers or not, want to buy from and work with ethical businesses. And of course, traceability is one of the items that consumers, in fact, more than two thirds of consumers say, they really care about traceability in products more and they're willing to pay a premium for it. So it presents itself as an opportunity for business and not just as something we need to do. That opportunity is very significant in size. And in fact, if you take a look at our study that we have just done with 7,000 businesses globally and about 400 of those from the UK, we believe there's a global opportunity of at least 36 billion by 2025 that businesses should want to take advantage of. So yes, it's an obligation. Yes, there's more scrutiny more than ever. And third, the opportunity that is presented is absolutely massive and we should take advantage of that collectively. Now, there are a number of barriers that are currently talked about a lot by businesses, by various institutions in the countries that help us, um, that, that we need to overcome in order to achieve the goals of sustainability of net zero emissions, net, net zero waste, and of course, equality for all. So what are those barriers? And let's talk about that with our panelists in a few moments. It's, it's quite key that we all recognize that there's still many business leaders that struggle with their objectives to make sustainability part of their strategies. In fact, in our recently launched study, you see that 35% of the panelists, of, of the uh, respondents say, absolutely, I struggle with it. What are the solutions and what do I need to do? So it's a significant group of businesses that hasn't embarked on their journey yet. 
And clearly, there are business benefits to be expected. So I'd like to ask Stephen Jameson a little bit about that. And why do you think that there's still such a large group of business leaders struggling to align their objectives with the sustainability commitments? And what are the benefits they should want to see? Stephen? Yeah, thank you, Mikhail. I, I think that there's a, you know, a couple of um, um, kind of key topics that sort of underlie this, this challenge. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we see these, these, the, these uh, commitments, we see the consumer demand, we see the sort of the, the opportunity, but, but the biggest question I see businesses grappling with is how do we actually make that actionable uh, in a business in a way that's actually um, going to help keep in line with current business commitments and objectives, but also, you know, pivot towards new ways of doing things and new ways of serving customers. And, and some of those some of those challenges are, are very difficult to unpick. Um, and, and oftentimes, and it's obviously difficult to speak generally about all business, but oftentimes, um, you know, we see organizations that have got the right idea, the right intent, having to operate, you know, within a free market economy where other organizations may not have quite the same intention, the same commitments. And I think one of the um, realities is, and I think one of the great acknowledgements we see across the sustainability world and the business world in general, is the need for, for a level playing field in order to be able to um, have a consistent basis on which to um, embed the costs, the, the uh, externalities of, of impacts of, of, of materials, whether it's environmental or social, uh, into you know, the cost of products so that we can raise the level playing field uh, and ensure that businesses can start to really um, act on uh, those those costs and externalities in a way that's sort of consistent and coherent. And I think the second element is really around the, the creativity, the innovation, how you unlock capital and how you how you 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 know really make that make that happen. And I think what we're now starting to see some really positive movement in the in the ESG space. Um, you know, not not just sort of green investing in terms of you know, you do good, and we're going to we're, we're going to make sure that you get you know lower cost of capital. But really, you know, surgically intervention uh, a sort of approach where people are giving green bonds to problematic organisations in order to actually um, you know make genuine material contract based improvements. So, I think we're starting to see this frame of regulation of investor uh, uh, um, requirement of of consumer demand which is now starting to come together. And the next question for all of us is how do we then make that actionable in a way that businesses can actually go on a journey? Yeah, I would agree with you, Stephen, that in, indeed uh, a level playing field and unlocking capital with creativity uh, are absolutely um, the reasons that people cite today, but there is nonetheless leadership in the industry already visible, right? And that creates a question about accountability. So I'd like to ask Walter about that. Who in the business should be responsible for sustainability and making things happen? What is your point of view about that? Uh, well, it, it is uh, one thing. Uh, one part of the question is who is ultimately accountable, and of course, that's the the, the board and the CEO. That is that is where the buck stops, uh, so to speak. But uh, if you look at the sustainability function. Uh, that is always an uneasy one. Where does that sit in an organization? And I don't think any organization has really found the perfect spot. It's because, in, in my view, uh, sustainability should 
as a function should make itself uh, superfluous as quickly as possible by training the rest of the company on, on how to integrate sustainability, how to embed it throughout the business. So uh, wherever it sits in the organization, uh, my, my point of view is keep that group small, uh, make them change makers and don't give them the responsibility, the accountability to make all the change themselves. Rather, they are the change makers that allow the rest of the company to change. And that, that for me is the, the key point. That's a very interesting answer, Vatar, because uh, in our survey, we, we found from the respondents that 34% agrees with you. It's mostly the CEO that should be primarily accountable and indeed the board. Um, and then 22% says people like yourself <laughs> in the chief sustainability officer role as a, as a starting point, as a change maker group should be responsible so that you can perpetuate the change. Uh, that may not be the answer that many people want to see because it's a small group, right? And the change has to go fast given the timelines that we're working on. So th this is definitely, um, in, in my point of view, a challenge for every employee, every customer, every partner, but how you start initiatives and get results from initiatives, I would agree with you, the change makers and the board both uh, are, the, are the best starting points. Uh, great, thank you very much for that, Walter. Now, obviously we need to measure the change and monitor the change that we're then working on from these actions that we've taken in enterprises. And what do you see as some of the big challenges when it comes to measurement, Stephen? I mean, essentially a couple of key key topics here. There's, there's the, the classic scope three measurement challenge. You know, how, how, how do you draw the line? What's the horizon uh, that you need to measure? And what, you know, the 15, 16 different categories of, of, of scope three, you know, how do you get a handle on that? Um, and, you know, every business uh, is, is grappling with this question at the moment. You know, we can make great strides in terms of scopes one and two, uh, but how to actually get full insight on scope three is, is, is a major conundrum across the business ecosystem we our, our role in that you know we're looking focusing on how we can help improve the quality of measurement for scope one and two through um you know solutions like um product footprint management which we re re recently released and then leveraging our business network in order to be able to um, scale that approach into the wider business network uh, and getting those insights across that full scope and i think the second piece is around you know, the, the, the measurement of materials, you know, so much of the impact of, of, of CO2, 45% of the impact of CO2 comes from the, the, the extraction, the movement, the management of, of materials, 80% of the world's biodiversity loss, for example, uh, through that uh, route. And, and, and we're really only scratching the surface now in terms of how we describe materials, how we measure them, how we get a consistent approach to that, uh, so that we can actually uh, understand the context of materials in different markets, uh, you know, one market's problem is another market's opportunity uh, and, and how we can really describe that and measure that in a way that's useful for action uh, is a critical component to uh, making change happen. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Uh, in, indeed, the horizon at which we measure the number of categories uh, around scope three and indeed the impact of materials that as a 45% contributor is, is massive. Uh, in, in our study, we also asked companies, so which metrics are you following and what do you do about it? And interestingly, uh, about 26% of companies have their own in-house metrics. And if you then look how many companies adhere to what is currently proposed as global uh, reporting initiatives, it's only 12% that's following those recommendations. So, so we have a fragmentation of landscape when it comes to measurement, that's currently what's happening. 
And, and so converging on that measurement, it will be important over time. And I just before we go to the next topic of working towards the solutions in a circular economy, I, I'd like to ask Peter, do you have any additional points of view about either accountability or measurement challenges today? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do, uh, Michael, thanks. And I just wanted to go one, one, one step back uh, to the original question as well, if that's okay, is that what, what we see in our work is, is enormous variability in the struggle. And, uh, so the depends on where you are in the value chain. So there's a real difference between, you know, if you're upstream in the extraction and, and primary processing compared to whether you're downstream, um, it varies by sector. If you compare <clears throat> automotive <clears throat> versus fast fashion, very different challenges and, and solutions, but also progress. Um, the, the, one of the big issues we find is leadership know-how, uh, the progressive uh, leaders and pioneers, including yourself in this field, seem to have an ability to um, uh, adapt and, and have this sort of ambidextrous sort of approach to leadership. Um, and, and of course, there's a big difference between startups and incumbent industries. And you know, the big challenge is how, how do you move sustainability forward or circular economy forward from within a linear business? Very different challenge compared to a startup. So I think one has to sort of see this as a sort of a, a, a spectrum and, and wildly different practices. In terms of the the measurement, if you move move outside just carbon, for example, I know that's the focus for today, but it's it's a real challenge that we see in all, all our work. It's the it's the question we get asked all the time. So, in fact, we're running a big event on on Friday on how do you measure the circular economy, and what 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 sort of is interesting us is you you already have quite sophisticated national accounts. You have national material accounts which are are codified in the UK by the Office of National Statistics. And there are taxonomies and there, there are methods and, and, and ways of justifying the, the quality of data. But what there seems to be is a mismatch between that and what happens at a, at a level below at the, at, the, at the value chain and the sectoral level. And I, I know, uh, I, I think Mike, Mike Grubbs can probably say something about this, is how do you bridge the two to, in, to, to connect them? Because what we're, trying to, what we're trying to do in our work is avoid the plastic straw syndrome. You know, that if you have a policy initiative to ban the plastic straw uh, to address the plastics problem, you, you end up with the so what question. What does that do for the total? And people find it very difficult, difficult to connect the macro, the aggregate, the national to what we call the meso, that, that sectoral level down to the product scale. So, you know, there's, and the, the problem is there's a proliferation of KPIs, as you rightly rightly um, highlighted, and it's very confusing. So people cherry pick, they often cherry pick the, the KPIs that uh, maximize their uh, positive agenda. And what we are trying to do is, is how do you create a system, system level KPIs? Because the circular economy sustainability is a system solution. You need a systemic approach. And we often lose sight of that because we don't have system level KPIs. We find them very difficult to, to sort of think about. And so we dive into the areas that, that we think we've got the greatest control over. Uh, thank you, Peter. I completely agree with that. Um, and and I, I appreciate you adding the, what are the, some of the barriers today, right? In terms of upstream, downstream readiness, leadership know-how and the incumbent versus startup uh, situations in an industry. I, I think that's, um, well reported, but it's also important for incumbents to learn from that and not be stuck in the trap of we are large and locked up. I think that's where probably the world's change is most needed, right? 
and that that tension is very very important. Uh, what you said about measurement and fragmentation, and I, I agree, the ONS taxonomy is out there, and we need more systemic solutions. That takes me to Michael Groves from Topolytics, because that that's an area that you you work in, Mike, and um, it, it's very interesting how you know in in I would say the circular economy, we, we can't achieve our goals, right? Without truly embracing it. Now, would you mind just first elaborating, what do you define or what are the principles of circular economy for you? And, and second, what is it that you see as necessary but ambitious targets? Well, I, I think the word sy systemic is, is the key one there, Mikhail, and, and Peter mentioned it as well. I mean. Our view is that you won't get a kind of scaled approach to maximizing the utility of all of that material that we're using in products and, and packaging unless you can have get a kind of systemic view of what then happens to that material once it's out of production systems and once it's out in the world with consumers uh, uh, or, or in a sort of commercial and industrial sort of waste context or byproducts. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build that kind of systemic view of that downstream system in order to then help drive that material back into that sort of production system. So in, in effect, clo close the loop. Because we know through the work that people like the Alan McCarth Foundation, which is a, a think tank, have done around this, the, uh, the benefits of the circular economy, you, you've clearly got resource savings, you've got significant savings in terms of, you know, sort of pure cost savings. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the, you know, the associated environmental and the sort of social impact of basically tipping all of that material into holes in the ground. So, you know, on a global basis, if you look at the World Bank figures, more than 60 percent of the material that we're generating in, as waste in sort of urban and, 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 and uh, environments is still going into, into landfills or waste dumps or at worst, clearly leaking into the environment. And, and, and we've obviously all, all heard about, you know, the ocean sort of plastics crisis in that way. So we think, and again, this is where we see technology and data and analytics as a way to actually help basically make, build trust in the data, build trust in what's happening across the system, build visibility into that system. So that actually all those players in that system, whether they be organizations that are producing products and uh, producing waste as a byproduct, those companies and organizations that are then moving and processing and doing something to that material. Uh, and then obviously governments who are also regulating and setting policy in this area can all get a much better view of what's happening so that fundamentally at a scale basis, we could actually start to make some better decisions, build different business models and actually ultimately improve the commercial as well as the environmental and social outcomes for that material. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Mike. And uh, I'll just add, add something to that, and I'll come back to you uh, in, in a minute. So the, the principles for circular economy, as we all know, the three main ones is for, first, we need to design out the pollution and the waste in the cycle. Number two, we need to keep productions and materials in use. And number three, we need to regenerate natural systems. And Mike, I'm coming back to you because you're working on a very fascinating project in Scotland on the waste project. Would you mind just elaborating a little bit about what we're doing there together? Yeah, I mean, we've deliberately focused on, if you like, the end of the pipe, which is the bit where that material goes into the waste system. And coming back to, you know, the, some of the points that have been made, when you look at the sort of the data models and the way, the way that material is defined in an upstream context, so we've got raw materials coming into a, into a, a business and going into sort of... Um, you know, the production process, it's, it's all fairly well defined because it's, it's purchased materials, 
you know, it, it's there's a good level of granularity and, and, and accuracy within that within that sort of data environment. But once that material then goes into that, if you like, the waste system, the way the waste system and the waste industry define what that material is, measure it, and 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 the way they sort of set the you know set the sort of the data around that is completely different. So you've got a completely different data environment. So you've got this sort of real disconnect between sort of the the upstream and the sort of production system and then the sort of byproduct and the kind of the waste system and that's the bit that we're trying to sort of find that way to connect those two so that we can we can drive you know so that material back into that sort of production system and so that's basically what the the project we did with 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 sap and some of sap's customers including ds smith and coca-cola european partners and, and brewdog was to sort of look at that material once it goes into that system so that could be the commercial and then the industrial material, which is the kind of coming out of production processes and, and operations. But it's also then what happens to that material once it goes into a post-customer or post-consumer environment. How do we model the, the pathway for that material through to the point at which something happens to it? And that's basically what we do with our, our platform, which is called Waste Map. And the reason we call it Waste Map is because actually being able to sort of really see where that material is going because it's a physical material that has to be moved before something happens to it is a really, really important way to start sort of thinking about, well, that's what the current situation is. What do we need to do to change that? So that's and because we're dealing with physical materials and because we have then a logistical challenge of actually, make, actually capturing that material and moving that material in, in a cost-effective way, really understanding the geography of the of the waste and the byproducts is really important so that's basically what we did with that project and part of it too coming back to cop 26 if you think about the movement and the processing of all that material if we're recovering more of that material if you like the carbon emissions attached to that are going to be significantly less than the carbon emissions attached to literally just making stuff using stuff and throwing stuff in a hole in the ground so there's a kind of huge carbon saving attached to, to, to optimizing that, if you like, that downstream sort of material system. So really, that's what we we're focused on. And, and, and the great thing about that project was, of course, we were able to access some of the really sort of granular, high quality data on materials and products that are going into those production systems. And then we try to marry that to our knowledge of what then happens to that material when it goes into the, uh, goes into the waste system. Thank you, Mike. That was a, a fantastic project. And I encourage those of you with questions to, to think about if you have any questions for Mike or for other participants in, the, in this project. Um, Peter, I'd like to come back to you for a second and then shift a bit from business away to consumers. And, and clearly, we have to change our consumption patterns, right? Uh, as, as an academic, what do you see happening when it comes to this top-down shift in the mindset? What, what needs to happen for us to genuinely, genuinely embrace? Genuinely embrace the circular economy from a consumer perspective. Um, well, as I said before, you, you, you've given me the $64,000 question uh, here about the consumer. Um, it's a tough ask. Um, we see a lot of progress <clears throat> and um, a slightly easier um, um, opportunity in the business-to-business -business space. So if you look at some of the great case studies on the circular economy, they're often in the business-to-business -business. and business-to-consumer, whether it's fast fashion, fast-moving consumer goods, whichever household, household sort of uh, systems, 
much more difficult. So what, why is that? Well, I'm, I'm old enough to uh, remember the, the period before Rio uh, 1990. So, um, and we've had waves of interest around, you know, green, green products and eco products, et cetera, et cetera. And they've not really bitten. They, they, they've become very segmented. And usually they fail uh, at scale for a number of reasons. One, one is that they're often more expensive. They're often p- perform less well than the traditional linear model. We've got cultures that have been have grown up over many decades. The linear economy has been hugely successful, very efficient, delivers really fantastic uh, products usually, but with little care or afterthought for what happens uh, after the after the first life cycle. So we're up against a real challenge. Um, and how do, how do you break through that? Well, you've, you've got to offer a great deal, you know, to the consumer. You know, we, we you know, you can appeal to altruism uh, and that, that gets you so far, but you've got to appeal to the consumer's self-interest and rationality. So I come from a very orthodox uh, sort of perspective on this. If you can make a great deal, a great product at a lower price or a low to- lower total cost of ownership, then you've got a chance uh, of, of shifting the dial, turning the dial. And we see we see some of this happening. So some some of the journalists in the room might might have picked up on the FT article last week about electric vehicles, you know, which appears uh, to be promoted as the salvation to the problem of of uh, uh, vehicle emissions. But there's a real downside, as as you mentioned earlier, that a huge amount of carbon uh, is is invested in the materials that go into those vehicles, and and some studies are suggesting that the carbon emissions from that product might be higher than, than than sort of what we've got at the moment from from fossil fuel derived vehicles. Okay, there's a, there's a debate going on about the data. So um, what, what do you do in that situation? Well, you've got to sort of offer a, 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 an arrangement which is win-win-win, win for the consumer, win for the business, and win for uh, win, win for the environment and society. And uh, to be able to do that, you've got to sort of shift your mindset. This goes back to the leadership question about how do you create a business model where you can earn more revenue by, by selling less, okay? Uh, big challenge. So you've got to shift your mindset towards services towards digitization, towards dematerialization. There's there's hundreds, hundreds of ideas out there. And that's part of the challenge is how do you put them together in a systemic framework? So the future, say, in in transport is probably going to have to be mobility as a service. And if you look at some of the data about the growth in mobility as a service, which five, 10 years ago, people said was just a sort of a bit of a, you know, a a whim and would never, never happen. It's growing exponentially. Uh, we're seeing huge, huge developments, not, not, not just necessarily in Europe, but across the world, because you know, people are beginning to realise not everybody's going to be able to own an, an electric vehicle. Just it won't happen. It can't happen. And you can't, you can't, you can't get to net zero through electric vehicles in, in, in the current ownership model. So I think, you know, in summary, it's, you've got to make a great deal. You've got to make it easy. You've got to make it as convenient as, as in the linear setup. And that's the challenge. Uh, so the great progressive companies are beginning to do that. And, and digital, digitization, uh, the type of things that Mike, Mike's just explained about visibility of, of, and transparency of data across the whole system, better labeling, better information, incentives, uh, sunrise you know, and sunset sort of uh, system. You've got to, got, we've got to get rid of certain things. We've got to promote other things. And we've got to make them very consumer acceptable. And, and consumer positive so you know and we, we could talk i could talk for hours about you know some of the examples that we look at yeah 
Thank you, Peter. And um, I concur with your views. The, the point I'd add is that in our survey that we, we cited earlier, 73% of consumers say traceability of products already matters today. And 71% is prepared to pay a premium. So the role business can play is to appeal to those consumers and not debate if it's needed. Traceability should be part and parcel of what every company does today, right? And second, when it comes to employees, uh, new generation employees demand circular economy solutions in products and in their work experience. I see this in the workplace. And as an employer, we have to provide them with the sincerity and authenticity that we care about the topics that younger generations are, are, are growing up with. And I think that's the other part of it, consumers and employees, right? So um, I'd like to shift now to Walter and, and ask him a little bit more about what DS Smith is doing and what you think the role of technology is in creating a circular economy um, and ultimately regenerate uh, opportunities in your business. Uh, given that you're a packaging business, uh, Walter, this is probably a real challenge for you dealing with both businesses and consumers. Would you mind elaborating on that, please? Yeah, thank you, Michiel. And I think, uh, first of all, DS Smith is already sort of a semi-circular business because we pick up old recycled material uh, uh, and we turn that into paper, into uh, packaging, cardboard boxes, and then we pick that old packaging at the end of its life up again. And that's a, we call that the 14-day box-to-box model. So we're already on our way to circularity, but there's still so much to do. But your question was, how, uh, what role can technology play? And I'd go as far as saying that achieving the circular economy and net zero are utterly impossible without technology. And I'll give you two examples. The first one is around waste. Uh, obviously, we were part of the, uh, the project with yourself and with Topolitics around, around waste. And there's a, there's a bigger picture here, which is, that uh, we need to close loops. We need to close material loops. That is what this is really about. So we need fiber. Uh, and uh, by that, I mean wood fiber, so paper, essentially. And at the moment, the recycling rates of those are, well, pretty high uh, in, across Europe, sort of 80 plus percent. But we really are our own aim uh, as uh, D.S. Smith is to get to 100% recycled. So that's not recyclable because recyclable, our materials already are, our products already are. But we want to get to 100% recycled products by 2030. That means that we need to know exactly where all our products go and be able to pick them up again. Now, that's a bit of a man on the moon mission. We want to do that by 2030. And I can already tell you that's probably impossible, but that doesn't matter. We want to see how far we can go on that mission uh, because those fibers, I don't want to see them ending up in incineration. I don't want to see them ending up in landfill. We need to close those loops. So that is a, a, an important mission. Secondly is uh, carbon emissions, scope three emissions in particular. So scope three emissions are supply chain emissions, right? That is, uh, if we buy materials from suppliers or at the end of the product life, uh, there are emissions involved and those are called scope three emissions. Now it is, we have thousands upon thousands of suppliers. How do, and they have their own suppliers. So tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers. It's a huge level of complexity. And without technology, you are not able to track where the emissions are, how they change over time. And therefore you don't know how to manage 
your scope three emissions. But it's essential that we all do. So technology really comes in there. And then finally, you talked about regeneration. I think um, for us, regeneration is, I, I really think about the trees because we still need for you know, um, uh, the vast, vast majority of our raw material is recycled fiber. So I think we're doing a good job there already. In fact, we uh, recycle more fiber than we need for our own business. So you could call us sort of a recycling positive. Uh, we, we, uh, we do a service uh, to society in that way, you could say. But we still need a certain amount of virgin fiber. So that is straight from the tree, essentially. And uh, we need to make sure that that the virgin fiber is sourced sustainably so that we essentially plant more forest than we need for our virgin fiber. So that is, those are, uh, that, that is a regeneration. Do we need technology for that? Well, maybe not for that particular task, but there are uh, um, other areas like uh, checking on deforestation around the world. You absolutely need technology, satellite technology, AI uh, for that. Uh, removing uh, ocean plastics requires technology, of course. Uh, technology is absolutely essential. Thank you very much, Walter. And I'll come back to you in just a minute um, because I want to shift a bit to, so how do we then work together, right? This is clearly not a mission of one enterprise by itself, but truly about partnerships across the supply chain, uh, across technology and academics and, and, and different innovators in, in various industries. Um, many of you may know or may not know, but we recently announced a, a purpose-driven partnership with Anglian Water with the CEO, Peter Simpson. He and I had a great conversation because our, our, we've recognized that, and this is a topic that Peter uh, highlighted earlier on the leadership know-how, we need to build the skills in the organizations and the know-how to truly get ready for that next phase and the sustainability accountability, measurement, tracking the systems. What does that mean inside the organization? So we've launched an initiative between our companies to upskill people in that domain. The second part of the partnership is really about what you talked about, Walter, that's supply chain complexity. We need to make sure we categorize suppliers and understand which ones are meeting um, sustainability standards, which ones are inclusive and source, for example, from social enterprises as well for a more equal society. So this is very much about social impact and not just about uh, profitability and about inclusion. And, and that's quite interesting because um, I think there's a lot to be done for local economies as well, not just at the national agenda, but at the local economy levels. So Walter, maybe shifting to you on the partnership angle, you clearly have sustainability as part of your DNA. I mean, if you look at your company's website too, it's in your mission, you, it's, it's really pervasive, right? So how do you work with partners to meet those sustainability goals? What are your expectations and experiences? Yeah, yeah, our purpose is to redefining packaging for a changing world. And gosh, is the world changing right now? Seriously, uh, if, you, if you just think about e-commerce and, and, and COVID and everything else, so it's more relevant than ever. Um, partnerships are critical because the circular economy is is impossible to achieve by yourself by definition you need lots of uh, uh lots of partnerships and i think about the uh peter's uh, course which i went on the masterclass, and some of the great examples there from companies who set up these elaborate ecosystems of innovation which are absolutely essential so partnership is baked into circular economy 
thinking. Uh, for us, apart from examples like the one with SAP and with Topolytics, uh, is um, that we are a strategic partner of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And that is an interesting one because they are systems thinkers. And at DS Smith, we are we think more about cardboard boxes and technology. So it's the, the, when you put them together, sometimes it's a li little bit uneasy because you talk in completely different terms. But when you finally get together, you learn from each other. And one of the uh, end products of that, for example, is a tool called Circular Design Metrics, which is, uh, is a, um, uh, a tool which allows you to measure how circular is a product today and how circular can it be if you make a few changes? So it makes it really simple for a customer to understand on, on various. So carbon is one of the one of the elements, but there are uh, there's about ten elements as to uh, the circular design metrics, and they can tinker with that. So they we can essentially help them to become more circular by choices they make, especially in the design phase. So. That is, we couldn't have achieved that without partnership. And, and so, yeah, essential. Thank you, Walter. I particularly like your comments from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation on systemic thinkers and the tension that causes with the practical and technology and, and product mindset in enterprises. That plays a bit to what Peter talked about earlier on the differences between incumbents in an industry versus startups, right? And we have to create those tensions deliberately in order to affect change. So thank you for that. Now, we are going to Glasgow, or at least COP26 leaders will be there, and there will be a lot of uh, discussions taking place. So I'm very interested from each of the panelists, a very short comment, please. What would you like to see as the main outcome of COP26? Well, let me start with uh, Peter, please. I think, I think you made a point earlier on uh, about um, products and services are a major source of embedded, um, embodied carbon. So I, I would... I think the real risk, there's a risk of COP26, is that we get completely obsessed around carbon and climate change, understandably, okay. But, but there's a bit of a risk, and this is around systems and systemic uh, thinking, is that, that we mustn't lose sight of A, that products and services are a major source of greenhouse gas emissions, but secondly, there's a whole load of other things that are, are connected, biodiversity. Uh, damage to the oceans, etc. So I would I would hope that that whatever is agreed sets the agreements in in the context of of a, of a broader understanding of um, what's needed long long term. You could get to net zero and still probably screw up the planet uh, and probably possibly even destroy the economy. I, I haven't worked it through on the back of a, an envelope, but it, it is quite possible and plausible to sort of think of some some pathways that could still enable you to destroy the environment for all the reasons we've discussed already about the, the way metrics are formulated, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my hope is, is place carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and climate change within a broader, within a broader um, debate about the, um, the state of the planet, the state of the economy. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Michael, what about you? I'd certainly echo uh, Peter's view around um, the importance of materials and consumption within the context of, uh, of COP so that we're not just focusing on, I guess we may end up just focusing on energy generation and, and mobility. Um, and obviously if you look at, you know, if you look at some of the figures in Scotland, I mean, Zero Waste Scotland have done some research, they're saying that about 80% of Scotland's carbon footprints is, is directly attributable to 
you know, products, materials, and, and, and services. So, so I think that's a really, a really important component that, that I hope doesn't get missed. Uh, I think there's an also a sort of bigger geopolitical thing. Clearly, there's a lot of sort of, sort of wobble at the moment around energy and, and energy sources and uh, the tension between renewable sources versus more traditional sources. So I hope that, you know, that sort of that argument and that thrust around, you know, the, the long term strategic need to switch to, you know, alternative energy sources is, is, is reinforced and that we're not, you know, we're not sort of forced back into a big debate about, you know, the relative merits of renewables versus any other sources of energy. Thank you very much, Mike. And Stephen, what about you? Uh, as SAP representative, nonetheless, you have a macro view. Yeah, sure. So I think, and to echo points already made, you know, this, is, this is firstly about joining the dots, um, you know, about making sure that the context of, of product and material impact is not uh, lost uh, and the associated you know impacts on on biodiversity it is all connected and you know when you see the food system for example responsible for 80 percent of of deforestation and um you know the opportunity to make the food system circular could could eliminate something like 49 percent of, of of co2 so you know there's big big macro topics here that need to be need to be addressed as systems so i think that's point one i think point two is you know i'm mean, going global role, I, I speak to organizations all around the world and work with regions all around the world. And um, there is definitely a risk of a two-tier system emerging. Uh, let's say one that's more European-centric and one that's less European-centric. And, um, you know, for us to see, you know, th this, this, uh, this global ambition achieved, that ultimately can't happen. You know, this, ha this has to work uh, 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 as a level playing field in, in a global context. And so anything that, that achieves that that goal uh, has has got to be welcomed. Yeah, excellent addition to that. I, I think that Eurocentricity versus non-Eurocentricity uh, is, is definitely a big political factor that keeps coming up and the participation of each nation in the COP goals will, will be critical. Uh, Walter, what about your point of view? What would you like to see from COP26 as an outcome? Uh, I, I would like to see uh, a certain amount of pragmatism coming out on how we're going to get there. And I, I, by that, I mean, uh, I can see language about leapfrogging from coal to, uh, to hydrogen. Well, if you know how long it will take for us to get hydrogen on the scale and financial viability that we need, you know that uh, some of the challenges that we're dealing with, like decarbonizing heat, are not going to be achieved in the imaginary uh, jump that people think is possible. We may, need, we may need two jumps. The same is true for reuse. If you follow the waste hierarchy, of course we want reuse and we prefer that to recycling, but it isn't always the best solution for the environment, certainly not with current consumer behavior. So if we really want the outcomes that we want, that means net zero and that means the lowest possible environmental footprint, then we need to be realistic and pragmatic on how to get there and be a little bit less um, uh, stuck in theory and just look at more at what works actually in practice. Thank you, Walter. Uh, as a fellow Dutchman with the same cultural traits, I, I must smile because I probably am in the same campus where you are. The, the word pragmatism comes to my mind as well. I, I really appreciated though the expansion of what Peter said 
and Mike and Stephen echoed, which is the biodiversity topic must be taken into consideration. It's not just about shifting energy, energy sources. Uh, the product and services footprint, yes, it has massive implications on carbon, but at the end of the day, I would also like some real commitment from nations um, that do have some bold goals associated with them. Uh, I think that commitment and follow through is everything. For, for us as business leaders, academicians, academicians and for uh, people in the press and media, I, th I think we also have to be very pointed towards specific outcomes. And the, the good news from the discussion today, I hope you took that away if you're listening, is, is number one, I think there's a realization that yes, the sustainability motion is real here and now. And for business leaders, it's not just about talk anymore, even though there might be a third of the UK population of business leaders still searching for matching uh, business strategy with sustainability goals, that two thirds is on its way and is making real commitments. And yes, there are technology and business partnerships in motion that you heard about from uh, Mike and from Stephen and from Walter on, for example, the waste project that we do in Scotland. I think these are impactful moments that give hope. Um, uh, finally, I, I really encourage people to learn more about uh, the circular economy, the actual solutions that are out there, the need for convergence on measurement, on similar standards as opposed to divergence uh, is, is, is absolutely paramount. The practical answer, and this is one of the things that SAP does do well, I think, is working with in the supply chain with many participants, be that on the supplier side, the categorization of suppliers, as well as with product footprint solutions, where we can help companies assess what is the carbon footprint and provide insights to consumers that their products have been sourced ethically and from sustainable and regenerative sources. So I think there's goodness happening and this is not all about the challenges and the barriers.